Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From the Inspiration of the Spirit to the Institution of the Church. And it's for Pentecost Day 2008, Sunday, May 11th. Jesus promised a kingdom goes the joke, but what we got was the church. The Feast of Pentecost, celebrated this week by Christians around the world, marks the birth of the church. After Christmas and Easter, Pentecost is the most important celebration of the Christian calendar. The term comes from the Greek word Pentecostos, meaning 50th from which one of the most important feasts in the Jewish calendar derives its name. Fifty days after Passover, Jews celebrated the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks. And then, centuries later, after their exile to Babylon, Pentecost became one of the great pilgrimage feasts of Judaism, a time when Diaspora Jews returned to Jerusalem to worship. In the book of Acts, Luke describes the first Christian Pentecost when what he calls God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven clogged the streets of Jerusalem, Acts 2.5. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God descended upon the first followers of Jesus. Luke compares it to the blowing of a violent wind and to tongues of fire. By the end of the day, and despite the mockery of some critics, 3,000 people joined the Jesus movement after Peter summarized their message. But compared to what happened in the coming years and decades, that was merely small potatoes, only the beginning of the world's first fully globalized institution. Luke repeatedly inserts summaries of the numeric growth in the geographic expansion of the newborn church. We read that the movement quickly burgeoned to over 5,000 men, Acts 4.4. In Acts 6, verse 7, he describes how, quote, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Then a few pages later, Luke writes that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord, Acts 9.31. And as Paul and Barnabas ministered in Antioch, Luke says that, quote, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, Acts 13.49. Luke's story ends with the Apostle Paul imprisoned in Rome, where tradition says he was martyred, but not before he had trekked 10,000 miles across Asia Minor, spreading the good news about Jesus and planting churches. In its first decades, the early church fulfilled what Jesus had promised, that the presence of the Spirit meant witnessing with power. In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, into the ends of the earth, Acts 1 8. 
And today, about a third of the world identifies itself as Christian, and no religion can claim more adherence. But Pentecost not only birthed the church, it began a bureaucracy. Across the centuries, man-made institutions became the wineskins for spirit-led inspirations, and therein lies both the wit and the wisdom in the joke about the difference between God's vibrant kingdom and moribund human churches. It's easy to criticize the church as a deeply flawed organization, but the institutionalization of the Jesus movement was both inevitable and necessary. Nothing happens without spirit-inspired people, but nothing lasts without institutions. How should they organize 5,000 new converts? What was its main message? What constituted proper worship and why? Could Gentiles join what was initially a Jewish movement? And if they did, should they observe the Mosaic traditions? Who would lead and why? How broad or narrow were its boundaries? What were reasonable procedures and protocols for feeding widows, collecting money for famine relief, sending out missionaries like Paul and Barnabas, or adjudicating disputes? In short, where was the Spirit of God blowing? Where was His fire burning? And how could you be sure? These and many other questions required that the movement of the Spirit become an organization of people. In his study of early Pentecostal Christians in American culture called Heaven Below, Harvard University Press, 2001, the Duke historian Grant Wacker explores how such a wildly enthusiast, anti-intellectual, countercultural, and divisive movement could not only survive, but flourish. Wacker says that early American Pentecostals did two things extremely well. They encouraged the primitive impulse of a deeply felt relationship with God, and then they devised pragmatic ways to bottle the lightning without stilling the fire or cracking the vessel. From those first tongues of fire described by Luke until today, from small beginnings as a vibrant movement to ecclesiastical institutions that two billion Christians call home, that has been the perennial challenge. How do we facilitate the Spirit's fire without shattering the bottle or extinguishing the flame? By the early second century, when the church began to observe Pentecost as a Christian celebration, a controversy erupted about just how to answer that question. Around the year 150 AD, a prophet named Montanus forced the institution of the church to grapple with the inspiration of the Spirit. As the prevalence and intensity of dreams, signs, wonders, and miracles gradually waned in the decades after the Apostles, as apocalyptic vision became less vivid and the church's polity became more rigid, Christians wondered, was this God's will? 
or maybe it was a consequence of the church becoming more bureaucratic. Wasn't it an embarrassment that the powerful manifestations of the Spirit seemed less frequent? Montanus believed that the decline in the Spirit's manifestations resulted from the church's moral laxity in matters like divorce and fasting. He wasn't satisfied with the mere theoretical possibility of the presence and power of the Spirit, or with other suggestions about how the Spirit might manifest himself. For him, the proof was very much in the pudding. He claimed to have received direct revelations from the Spirit, and at times his comments even implied that he was the incarnation of the Spirit. The sect named after him, Montanism, was thus characterized by fanatical zeal, rigorous asceticism, and an excessive preoccupation with supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. Two women, Priscilla and Maximilla, accompanied Montanus, and they too claimed direct communications with the Spirit. The most famous Montanus was the great African theologian Tertullian, who lived in Carthage, modern-day Tunisia. He once complained about, quote, the church of a lot of bishops, end quote. Writing in the early 3rd century, Tertullian gives us a snapshot of the Montanus movement. He writes, We have among us now a sister who has been granted gifts of revelations, which she experiences in church during the Sunday services through ecstatic vision in the Spirit. And after the people have been dismissed at the end of the service, it is her custom to relate to us what she has seen. More mainstream church authorities responded to Montanism in two ways. The historian Eusebius employed derision. He scorned those who, quote, rave in a kind of ecstatic trance, end quote. He dismissed what he called their bastard utterances as, quote, the demented, absurd, and irresponsible sayings of a presumptuous spirit, end quote. The Montanists, he said, babble in a jargon that's contrary to the custom of the church, which had been handed down by tradition from the earliest times. According to that tradition, the Spirit of God speaks clearly, sufficiently, and reliably enough through three means, the canon of scripture, the creeds of the councils, and the clergy of the church. Hippolytus, a contemporary of Tertullian who was martyred in Rome in 235, resorted to denial. He taught that miraculous visions and direct communications from the Spirit ended with the revelation of St. John. He said that, in effect, the Spirit worked differently now than in the apostolic days. In the words of the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, in contrast to Montanus, just as Hippolytus pushed the time of the second coming into the future, so he pushed the time of spirit prophecy into the past. Which is to say, for Hippolytus, the work of the spirit was now a difference not only of degree, 
but also fundamentally of kind. Although the institutional church recognizes the Spirit's voice primarily in its historical creeds, its biblical canon, and its apostolic clergy, in the experiences of monks and friars, of mystics and seers, the Montanus heresy has carried on what Pelican calls a sort of unofficial existence. I'm reminded that the Spirit of God who hovered over all creation Genesis 1-2, still blows where, when, and how he pleases, John 3, verse 8. 2,000 Pentecost celebrations later, we should heed Paul's advice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 19-21. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. And now for further reflection. How do you discern authentic movements of the Holy Spirit? Or conversely, how do we discern spurious claims of the presence of the Spirit? Number three, can you identify examples of each? And finally, what do you think that Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21? For books this week, I review Ron Sider, The Scandal of Evangelical Politics, Grand Rapids, Baker Books, 2008, 275 pages. A friend of mine recently mentioned that she still has her dog-eared copy of Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, first published in 1977. She had it from her college days 30 years ago. Christians in general, and evangelicals in particular, owe a debt of gratitude for that book and for that matter, many of the other 30 books that Ron Sider has written across the last several decades. I deeply appreciated his book called Completely Pro-Life, in which he argued that Christians ought to protest anything and everything that threatens human life, like handguns and tobacco companies, and not just a few litmus test issues like abortion. This book, the Scandal of Evangelical Politics, needs a different title. It's not a treatment of all the ways evangelicals have scandalized the gospel by their political engagements, even though Sider believes that they have floundered and failed their way to tragic failure the last 40 years. Rather than such a negative critique as the title seems to imply, Sider attempts to craft a positive evangelical philosophy of politics. But this strikes me as an elusive quest. He notes that there is a rich tradition of political thinking by other Christians like Catholics, mainline Protestants, and certainly Anabaptists. It's not at all clear to me what would qualify as a uniquely evangelical contribution to the, to the debate. 
Plus, I tend to agree with Gary Wills in his book, What Jesus Meant, that there's no such thing as a Christian politics. In fact, this is a point that Sider seems to concede, as when he admits that the Bible doesn't give us any clear direction about many things like democracy, free markets, or even killing in war. And when the Bible does mention such issues, interpreting and applying its message is no easy task. After a few introductory chapters, Sider's book is issue-oriented, and herein lies another problem. Given the complexity of the issues, a point he repeatedly makes, he's tried to cover far too much material. Everything from the nature and purpose of the state, the sanctity of human life, marriage and family, care for creation, nation-states, to whether we should expand the United Nations. Euthanasia gets one page, as does genetic engineering, while starvation and smoking receive but half-page considerations. But given how much cider has tried to cover, this was an unavoidable. Plausible arguments can often be made for diverse views on complex political matters. And this is a point that Sider also admits. Almost every issue he discusses provokes significant ambiguity. He believes that the Bible would condemn abortion as murder, for example, but he quickly admits that this conclusion does not settle the question of what public laws on abortions Christians should promote. I repeatedly felt like genuinely Christian points of view that Sider marshaled were compelling but problematic when one tried to imagine how they might be mainstreamed into public policies. At the end of the day, though, Sider is surely right that because politics is so practically important, and because Jesus is Lord over all aspects of creation, it would be foolhardy for Christians to retreat to the evangelical position of 40 years ago that favored spiritual soul-winning at the expense of secular politics. Ron Sider, The Scandal of Evangelical Politics. For film this week, I review There Will Be Blood from the year 2007. This film is almost three hours long, and there's not a word of dialogue for the first 15 minutes, but I could barely believe it when the credits rolled at the end. Based upon the novel Oil by Upton Sinclair in 1927, the film is set in the wild California frontier at the end of the 19th and beginning of the early 20th centuries. Daniel Day-Lewis stars as Daniel Plainview, a silver miner who discovers crude oil on his land. And Paul Dano, who plays a preacher named Eli Sunday, who sells rights to the oil on his family's property in order to help his church. Plainview and Sunday become moral rivals. And 30 years later, at the end of the film, both characters have been deeply corrupted. Plainview goes mad whereas Eli admits that he's a fake and doesn't believe that God exists. 
In an important subplot, Plainview's adopted son lives under his father's very dark shadow and declares at the end of the film, I thank God I have none of you in me. Plainview's own last words are a confessional understatement. I'm finished. Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, There Will Be Blood won two Academy Awards, Best Actor for Daniel Day-Lewis and Best Cinematography for Robert Ellswit. There Will Be Blood from the year 2007. And for Pentecost Sunday, May 11th, we continue our series of poems by Hildegard of Bingen, who lived from 1098 to 1179. The title of her poem or hymn is O Comforting Fire of Spirit. O comforting fire of spirit, life within the very life of all creation, holy you are in giving life to all. Holy you are in anointing those who are not whole. Holy you are in cleansing a festering wound. O sacred breath, O fire of love, O sweetest taste in my breast which fills my heart with a fine aroma of virtues. O oh, most pure fountain through whom it is known that God has united strangers and inquired after the loss. O oh, breastplate of life and hope of uniting all members as one. O oh, sword belt of honor, enfold those who offer blessing. Care for those who are imprisoned by the enemy and dissolve the bonds of those whom divinity wishes to save. O mightiest path which penetrates all, from the height to every earthly abyss, you compose all, you unite all. Through you clouds stream, ether flies, stones gain moisture, water becomes streams, and the earth exudes life. You always draw out knowledge, bringing joy through wisdom's inspiration. Therefore, praise be to you who are the sound of praise and the greatest prize of life, who are hope and richest honor bequeathing the reward of light. Hildegard of Bingen O comforting fire of spirit. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 11th, 2008, Pentecost Sunday. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.